Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this is a special episode, a recording from Milton Keynes Literary Festival. Yes, this was the first ever Milton Keynes Literary Festival that was held this year, 2017. And uh, we agreed to do a seminar there, um, which was for a specially themed evening, which was called Made in Milton Keynes. And we used the fact that Call of Cthulhu 7th Edition came out really at the Milton Keynes Role Playing Club as a springboard to then talk about a, a larger topic, which was sort of ongoing cross-pollination between role-playing games and fiction and the way the two feed into each other. We were joined by Mike Mason, but sadly, Matt was struck down with the Stuttgart Plague. Indeed. Uh, the first time I ever came to Stuttgart and all I came back was this with this lousy T-shirt that just said, I'm a lean, mean, phlegm-producing coughing machine. <laughs> but you were a very generous soul, Matt, and you managed to give this to everyone you knew. Whoa. Okay, well, thank you all for coming out this evening. Um, this is the, the panel on uh, the crossover between RPGs and fiction. So, I mean, that, that I think goes some way towards answering what a discussion on role-playing games is doing in a literary festival. I mean, the other aspect of this is this day of, of the literary festival is given over to projects that come out of Milton Keynes. It's the Made in Milton Keynes Day. One of the things that's, that's come out of Milton Keynes in recent years is the new edition of uh, Call of Cthulhu, um, one of the, uh, the longest-running role-playing games uh, on the market. I'm very, very happy to be joined this evening by the two authors of the new edition, uh, Mike Mason, if you care to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Mike Mason. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the authors of the new edition of Call of Cthulhu. I also um, I work uh, for the company that publishes Call of Cthulhu, Chaosium, uh, where I'm the, the line editor for the Call of Cthulhu game. And Paul Fricker. Yep, hi, I'm Paul. Uh, I'm co-author of Call of Cthulhu 7th edition uh, and um, a number of other related books that uh, in, the, in the role-playing world. Okay, and I'm Scott Dalwood. I also worked on the book and uh, do a bit of freelance work for Chaosium and a number of other RPG publishers. Well, first of all, let, let's get let's get the, the the big question out of the way, uh, which will help shape what our discussion is going to be like for the rest of the evening. Is there anyone here who hasn't played a tabletop role playing game before? Aha, uh-huh, we've got a couple. Excellent. Okay, um, so we will spend a little bit of time then, sort of setting the scene and explaining what exactly this is we're talking about. Um, are, are, are you two at least you know familiar with roughly what a what a tabletop RPG is? Well, I'll hand over to Paul, though, if you you want to give a kind of quick summary. A very quick potted uh, history or or a summary. Um, So RPGs came out of the the wargaming hobby, I guess, um, in the 1970s uh, with Dungeons & Dragons in 1974. They've been around for about 40-odd years um, in a myriad of uh, role-playing games that we now see. So when we talk about a role-playing game it's very easy to sort of contradict ourselves and say, well, but it isn't always like this or it isn't always like that or because there are so many diverse approaches to it now. In essence, your standard role-playing game, someone takes the lead and they're the game's master 
and they have a scenario in their, well, usually on paper, sometimes just in their head, but they're, they're leading a, a world and the other players are taking up the role of characters in that, in that scenario. Uh, and it's a, an interactive process by which a, a story is created. And that's role-playing, but it's not just role-playing, it's a role-playing game. So alongside that aspect, you know, on the scales, that's equaled out by the gaming aspect, which is usually uh, done by, with dice uh, to introduce uh, random resolution mechanics. So, you know, I, as a player, I want to achieve something. I want to overhear what somebody's saying, you know, on the next table, maybe it's a bit noisy. Well, I might have to make a roll to see if I can do that or if, you know, if I get spotted, you know, earwigging. So when it seems dramatically appropriate and there's tension, then something would be decided with dice, just, you know, a, a random uh, outcome generator. Now, Call of Cthulhu has come... Shall I go into where Call of Cthulhu has come out of? Or? Uh, I, I was going to hand that over to Mike, because sure I, yeah. I, I think that's very much his, his view. Yeah. I mean, before we drift away from that, though, yeah, when we're talking about role-playing games, I mean, a, a lot of people these days experience role-playing games in very different forms, um, I mean, particularly computer games. That, has, that perhaps came... I mean, there weren't computer games in the, in the mid-70s, right? But... Uh, World of Warcraft and, and so on is very clearly influenced by Dungeons and Dragons and related games. Um, and now there are whole online worlds, um, Second Life and um, uh, oh, the one Shannon works yeah, for. Yeah, one of uh, a friend of ours, a, a chap we met in America recently, um, headed up one of the, yeah. the, the companies uh, that ran an online immersive. Uh, role-playing game essentially that we'd, we'd never heard of it was where i mean whether it was a game or not is kind of arguable but it was an experience where people could sign up and take on a persona in this shared world and one of the remarkable things was that his stereotypical standard player was a 26 year old female i think i think so yeah yeah um, which kind of defies perhaps the expectations that one might have of you know somebody who would be playing that, and it was the kind of people that and I think this has a bearing on role playing games. The kind of people that he got or that, that research had shown were people in isolated communities, well isolated, isolated culturally perhaps from the kind of people they wanted to be. Um, so perhaps they were in small town America where they couldn't express themselves as they wanted to express themselves or you know countries around the world where you know they weren't able to express um, whatever they wanted to um, but through this kind of imaginary role play in a safe environment online they could and I think we see the same thing at the you know just at a table as we might if we set this up to play a game that you kind of allows you just to step out of your everyday life and I think that's part of the appeal of role-playing games you step step out of your everyday existence and sort of step into the shoes of somebody else if you were, you know, in your favourite TV show, perhaps that's a good parallel. That combined with the, you know, the gaming aspect. And talking about computer games, I mean, Mike, uh, Call of Cthulhu's got a fairly rich history with computer games now. And and that's that's about to grow, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's um, a new computer game that's um, licensed from the, the actual 
role-playing game about to come out. Well, I say about to. You can never say about to with a computer game, can you? <laughs> um, it's about to come out sometime next year uh, for you know for PlayStation and Xbox and PC, uh, and that's um, that process has you know obviously um, involved a, a lot of people working on computers that I have nothing to do with. However, in terms of the plot development. Um, one of the authors who um, who has worked on numerous Call of Cthulhu scenarios and, and material over the years, um, you know, I put him in touch. Well, I put them in touch with him uh, as a person that could help them develop a plot for the computer game. So it's a real kind of tie-in with that. So Wait, was that Mark that's Morrison? Mark Morrison from in Australia. All right, excellent. And and I mean, before we we drift away from the idea of basically <coughs> what an RPG is. Um, because again, you know, we're, t- we're talking about the crossover um, between writing and and role playing games. What kind of writing goes into role playing games? Uh, into tabletop role playing games, the actual yeah. generating of the books. Yes. Yeah. So I'd say um, it's very different to. I'm not a fiction author, um, but it, you know, I can perceive it's not. It a lot of what we're generating is fiction. You know, these these monsters and so on. They're not real. But it's a lot of it is instructional. It's technical writing to sort of instruct somebody else to get the idea across to them. So we're writing. Uh, well, there's two, I guess, two broad categories. One is is to communicate the rules effectively, the rules and how you run the game and so on, which is very sort of instructional with a lot of um, examples. Beyond that, what we're usually writing are what are called campaigns or scenarios, which are kind of the backbone of a story that the players can interact with. So they'll they'll detail locations and um, characters, events that might happen, um, story threads that can be woven together. But writing that effectively is, you know, the core thing is, well, A, to make it interesting to read, hopefully, and B is to make it structured in such a way that it's, it's functional and useful to the person running the game. If it's just a big information dump that isn't structured very clearly, then, then that's a problem. Um, so it needs to be as easy for the person, I think, to, to, to pick up, to read and get, OK, I know what I'm going to do with this. I'm not, I know how I'm going to present it to my players. Yeah, I think there's quite a... An art to, to doing that. I think. Well, it's, I mean, it's definitely an art form. I mean, it is a complete marriage of, between, as you say, technical writing and creative writing, because both elements exist throughout. You know, every page of a role playing book has both elements, more or less. Um, so it is a real marriage of the two, and it's in. I want to say it's unique, but it is within the UK, unique end of that type of style of writing, mm. um, because it does require both sets of skills. And clearly, some people, you know, are, are more specialised in creative writing; others are more specialised in technical writing. But it does marry them together, and that's why it is um, not as easy as some people, you know, may may think before they actually start. It's, it's quite, oh, yes. you know, quite a technical skill and a creative skill at the same time. I remember having a very interesting discussion with you a while ago, Mike, um, where I, I, I was coming at it from the point of view of trying to make the text as transparent and almost as bland as possible to make it easy for people to absorb. And uh, you, know, you were putting the argument that it's got to be entertaining to read mm. because you thought, particularly with gamers getting older, there's an awful <laughs> lot of people who read this material and never actually get time to, to play it. So they're, they're buying these books you know, primarily to read them and enjoy them the same way as they would a collection of short stories. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly a proportion of the, the general kind of role-playing audience, the market, that, that 
don't really play games anymore. They, they either by choice or by circumstance don't actually have a group of people nearby to play with. Obviously, that, nowadays it's a little easier because people can go online and play games online. But, but you know, some people just don't have the time. And so there is that proportion in the market that is um, that likes reading it. I mean, and the thing is about, unlike many other role-playing games, Call of Duty games are generally built around a, a mystery premise. So there's a mystery. So if you're as a reader going through, there is an entertainment value of kind of working through the plot as you read through, as if you were a player almost, and trying to, you know, working out what's happening and, and getting to a kind of resolution at the end. So it has, it has just kind of fit that kind of mould to some degree. And I think that brings us on quite nicely to, um, yeah, perhaps if, if you can then sort of explain to you know, anyone here who might not be overly familiar with it, what Call of Cthulhu is and also what its connection to, to Milton Keynes is. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, as I say, you know, Call of Cthulhu effectively is a, uh, a game of mystery and horror uh, in which players take on the role of investigators to uncover kind of um, nefarious plots and and. Uh, and uh, kind of uh, battle against kind of uh, you know cults of humans who who kind of worship these kind of alien beings from beyond time and space, effectively in, in a nutshell. Um, and um, effectively, that's all stems from uh, a particular writer in the early twentieth century called Howard Phillips Lovecraft, who effectively um, created these kind of beings like Cthulhu, which is this sort of you know kind of godlike alien being that came down to earth you know in pre-human times and ruled the earth for a while but then there's other other beings like Cthulhu maybe some even more powerful that you know like Azathoth in the middle of the universe this kind of idiot kind of god that sort of you know is creation to some degree the beginning and end and you got all these kind of crazy things that if man as, as Lovecraft kind of puts it if man could comprehend the realities of the cosmos we'd, we'd you know run in fear and go crazy from the lack of sense of it all Lovecraft created these stories in the in the early 20th century and as he was writing them he also inspired other writers within his circle uh, people like Clark Ashton Smith Robert E Howard probably more famously known um, to actually also begin to use this kind of mythos that he'd kind of created within their own stories so it immediately started to grow and be, grow beyond what Lovecraft had wrote and and really, ever since then, it has continued to grow. And as other writers and, and contemporary writers have kind of been touched by either through reading Lovecraft's work or any other writers that have used the used the kind of mythos as a kind of a, a cornerstone to their work, um, have been inspired to then kind of kind of add to the mythos. But it's not it's not a collective canon. It, it's, there is no canon to it. It's all everyone's own take on different things and, and it doesn't all fit together and that's maybe the beauty of it because it allows writers to just take the bit that interests them and, and that's the bit they want to write about and go with go off in whatever direction they may do um, and which kind of it neatly comes to kind of the, the problem with Lovecraft the conundrum with Lovecraft is that whilst his stories and creations are quite you know can be quite inspiring quite you know, quite interesting and certainly have inspired a, a massive kind of you know literary kind of genre and, and um, popular media genre you know you can't escape the fact that the man himself was a horrible racist and the, and some of his stories you know it comes through you know there's some pleasant stuff that he writes within some of his stories not all of them but certainly some of them um, and is you know quite distasteful to you know, not only contemporary, but previously contemporary audiences as well. Um, and so, but as I said, the way it kind of works in the literary sense is it still allows people to take what they want from it and go in their own direction. So so we've seen this recently with, with some writers who actually 
basically head on tackling some of the racism and actually taking it in new directions and actually quite interesting, you know, um, ways of approaching it. So I'm talking about people like uh, Victor Laval, um, who wrote recently the ballad, the ballad of Black Tom, uh, Matt Ruff, who wrote a novel, well, a, a novel of short stories called Lovecraft Country. Uh, and um, Sylvia um, Marina Garcia, who who put together an anthology called She Walks in Shadows, which is all uh, female authors uh, writing within the world of the, the Cthulhu mythos. Um, and some of them, you know, directly kind of tackle Lovecraft's racism straight on. And that's what interests you. That's why it's, I say it has this kind of broad appeal and it allows, you know, you, and because it's not canon, you can take it and make of it what you will without having to, you know, without... Being hung up on 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 Lovecraft's personal racism, which obviously is is, is problematic in, in a number of ways, um, and that's the same thing that we you know we try and do within the game. That it's, there are certain aspects that we can actually address and tackle some issues that perhaps Lovecraft um, himself would have raised that we find onerous today and turn it on its head. Indeed, Lovecraft's prose himself, you know, some some would accuse his prose of being slightly purple and whatnot. Um, and indeed, there's no reason why you can't poke fun at Lovecraft himself in that in that way. But you know, that kind of sums it up into a degree. I mean, there's a whole literary field. You know, people have uh, written many, many uh, a lot of literary criticism on this. So to sum it up very briefly, is is, is not an <laughs> yes. easy task. But there you go. And, and the connection to Milton Keynes. A connection to Milton Keynes. Okay, so um, right. Well, I used to live in Milton Keynes. Um, for 10 or so years and while I was here I did two things I started a um, a fanzine that was specifically um, about the Call of Cthulhu game and I also started a um, a group of volunteer games masters uh, some of which were game writers or I guess we all wanted, we're all wannabe games writers at that point. No one was had been published, I don't think, at that point. Um, so those two things were kind of a bit of a catalyst. So I mean, that, through those things, I certainly you know met Paul, um, and we you know we then started to you know write and game and, and run games for the people. And Scott kind of was you know came in through that as well to some degree, and many of the people and. Um, and through that kind of connection, started in Milton Keynes. Um, obviously, I, I moved away, but these guys remained here. So we continued to write and work together. Um, and um, it was through the kind of uh, kind of stuff I'd done with Paul that the kind of the notion of a new edition for the for the Call of Cthulhu game kind of started to come to the fore. Uh, and um, and in doing so, you know, we we were the kind of the main authors on writing that, but but also we. A lot of the playtesting that you know, where obviously where Paul is here, people like Scott and, and Matt Sanderson and so on, um, we're here to do a lot of the early playtesting as well. So there's a kind of a strong connection in terms of the locality, in terms of uh, the informing what went into the edition. Paul, well, I was going to um, pick up on a point you made about everybody wanted to be a, a wannabe author in in role playing games. I think that. That is a very strong vein in, mm. in the hobby. Um, oh, yeah. I think perhaps it's because we get a rule book and we get some scenarios and it very much encourages that the rules of pretty much all the role-playing games very much encourage the, the players to be their own authors, to, well, to, to narrate their own character's story, but also to create stories. You know, I've, 
I've played in Scott's game maybe, and then I think, you know, I'm a new person. I think, well, maybe I'd like to run a game too. And then, you know, maybe I write a little scenario and run it. And it kind of very much develops that desire, I think, in people to sort of think that, you know, I could do this as well. Um, it very much engenders sort of the, the, the spirit of wanting to, to write your own games and your own stories. And, you know, there's, particularly now, I think, with the, the ease of publishing, you know, with print on demand or just putting things out as PDFs, that doorway is so easy just to, to step into that it's, it's really opened up for people to, to do that. I think it's great. Yeah. I, I mean, this is one thing that struck me about role-playing games in particular. I mean, you see it to some extent in fiction as well, but I think more in role-playing games that they, they, there isn't necessarily any real difference when you go around the conventions between uh, you know the, the industry professionals and everyone else. You know, we're, mm. we're all just fans. We're all just there to play the games. And um, you know, there, there are an awful lot of people who you know, just write write up their own personal scenarios, uh, end up getting them published. You know, this isn't a career for them, but, they, the, but, they, but it still makes them professional. I would writers. think the barrier to entry for mm. a short story writer is quite a lot higher to actually it, gain an audience, isn't it? I, would I think, think, I, well, I, I think just for writing scenarios. And well, there's, a, there's a, yeah. obviously, you know, the <clears throat> role-playing audience is somewhat smaller than the fiction audience. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you are, you know, you, it's a different kind of sizes of pools. However, if you can, if you write a, a role-playing scenario, let's say, which is the starting point most people would do, um, and you actually get it to a point where actually it's, you know, somebody else could read it and understand what you're trying to say, uh, and actually have fun with it, uh, and and uh, either self-publish it or, or or sell it or license it or whatever it may be to get it out there, um, if it hits a certain, you know, it hits. Um, the button with with a lot of people that it will create a buzz and, and within the community because there's a you know there are certain forums and fan sites and review sites that that you know something that gets a bit of popularity can have the ball roll so mm-hmm. from nowhere suddenly you know your snow could be being talked about you know for at least for a short while mm-hmm. um which you know is i would imagine it's, it's a lot harder in the big pool of fiction to get that kind of ball rolling that quickly as compared to role play perhaps I also think in fiction there's a lot more competition for professional markets. Well, well, this is it, yeah, and, yeah. Well, it's kind of as you say, there's you know it's a sm- it's a smaller pool um, with less you know less publishers uh, and less people in it to some degree. So it's a, it's a you can, if you can make a wave, it's more likely to hit a few people, I guess. Well, let's move on then to talking a little bit about the, this sort of crossover between fiction and role-playing games. Um, all three of us recently went to the Necronomicon convention in uh, the US, which is uh, it's, it's an unusual convention in that it's, it's all about Lovecraft and, and the Cthulhu mythos and all the ancillary stuff. But it's both for, I mean, it's for, for fans of the fiction, it's for fans of gaming, it's for film fans... And, and so you've got lots of different worlds that are coming together here. And what, what always strikes me as being a little weird is how balkanized those worlds are sometimes. Um, I, I can sort of understand it from the point of view that, you know, on the literary side of things, there's an awful lot of people who are interested in, in writing Lovecraft in fiction or, or Lovecraft in literary criticism who may not be gamers. And, yeah, I mean, that's fine. I mean, not everyone is a gamer. But what always strikes me as being a bit weird is the number of gamers who don't read any Lovecraftian fiction, despite being passionate Call of Cthulhu players. 
And I think that probably extends to, I mean, not just Call of Cthulhu, but a lot of fantasy role-playing mm. games, that you, you get a lot of people who are influenced by the fiction they read, who you know, and, uh, you know, create um, these role-playing games inspired by or sometimes directly licensed from them. But I think an awful lot of the people who play them experience those games as their own things, that they don't necessarily uh, see them in the larger context of the fiction. I, you know, personally, that's that's something I'd really like to see change. You know, particularly, I mean, not not for everyone necessarily, but certainly for people running games. I think, you know, it's it's certainly enriching to be steeped in the genre that that you're you're drawing on. I mean, I mean, the best advice I ever had in terms of writing and in terms of reading was from a horror a horror author. Um, who said, um, stop reading horror and read some other stuff. Mm. And that, that was the best advice. But I mean, yeah, I think re, you know, reading anything is often a good thing, isn't it? Any, read anything <laughs> yes. is, is often a good thing. If, if, you're not, if you don't want to read love, you know, you want to play Call of Cthulhu, but you, you know, Lovecraft racism puts you off. There's plenty of other um, horror and Lovecraftian fiction not written by Lovecraft. That, that you would probably get a lot out of uh, without touching on, you know, some guy from the uh, 1920s who, you know, you might find objectionable. But I, th- this this um, kind of seeping in fiction has been there since the outset. There's there's a fairly iconic thing. I, I, I mean, Paul touched on the fact that Dungeons & Dragons was the first uh, role-playing game. Um, it's, the, it's the one that spawned everything else, and, and you know, we're, we're still in its shadow today. It is. I mean, when people think of role-playing games, they think of Dungeons & Dragons, first of all. In, in, um, not in the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons, but in AD&D, uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which came out late 70s, was it? Uh, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, there was a series of appendices. Um, One of them, Appendix N, gave a list of the the, the fiction that Gary Gygax, who who wrote uh, that edition of Dungeons & Dragons and was the the co-creator of it, that he he considered to be essential to uh, understanding or playing D&D. They were the the stories that influenced him. And, yeah, it, it was... Lots of stuff like you might expect, particularly if you read a lot of fantasy. Um, you know, we, we touched on Robert E. Howard, the creator of the Conan stories. He, he was writ fairly large in there. Uh, Fritz Leiber, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Lord Dunsany, uh, Rogers Lasney. Um, there were a few interesting things in there, and he included Tolkien. Not necessarily because Tolkien was a huge influence on him. Apparently, he didn't like Tolkien very much. But it was just simply because the players in the game were so you know, into Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit that the, you know, as soon as they wanted to play epic fantasy, this is these were the touchstones they had. So sort of, well, and, and D&D has got elves, hobbits... Yeah, well, but, but apparently, apparently a lot of that stuff was put in afterwards oh, yeah, because, no, sure, because people wanted to play those. Yeah, those, yeah, yeah. Those, but those guy wasn't a fool. Oh, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll mention Tolkien and I'll make sure the game looks like a Tolkien game. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so how much you didn't like it, he liked it enough to put it in. <laughs> and, and, and there were a couple of other writers whose who influence was so strong that they actually ended up shaping the mechanics of the game. Uh, one was Michael Moorcock. Um, and in his Eternal Champion books, you know, they, they, they're all about a sort of fight between the forces of law and chaos and trying to find some balance between them. And the D&D alignment system pretty much comes out of those stories. And similarly, uh, Jack Vance wrote a fantastic series of books called uh, The Dying Earth. And um, in those, there's 
this idea that magic is this hugely complicated thing um, and that if you want to be able to cast a spell, you have to memorize it, you know, really pack it into your head. But as soon as you cast it, the effort of doing so sort of just it, it expunges it from your head. And this ended up being the basis of, of the magic system in D&D, which you know, ended up being there as a way of, of balancing the game, really, so that you didn't have wizards who could just throw off spell after spell after spell and, and, and overshadow everyone else. But, I mean, rather than that just being a game mechanic, I mean, that comes purely out of fiction. What kind of interests me about the, the way that, that role-playing games draw on... Um, on fiction is the kinds of things that we take from it. I, I, I remember a fairly unkind comment in. Uh, do you remember in in White Dwarf years ago? Dave Langford used oh, to write yeah, yeah. this fantastic book review column called Critical Mass, and I just remember that he. Um, I know. Yeah, he, he, he at some point TSR, the people who published Dungeons and Dragons, launched their own fiction life line, and um, they advertised it as f- uh, fantasy brought to you by the people who know fantasy best. And and Langford's riposte to that was, yes, yeah, like countryside brought to you by the people who know strip mining best. Um, and yeah, it, 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 that was perhaps a little too cutting, but. I mean, there's an element of, of truth in that, and that we, you know, when we're we're looking at source material, we tend to sort of strip out as much, you know, useful stuff as we can. Paul, I mean, how how would you say that, you know, when you're looking at fiction, I mean, particularly for something like the Call of Cthulhu rule books, uh, when you're looking at the fiction that this is all based on, um, how how would you say you actually end up using that? Well, I think you very much kind of modularize it really into into little bits that we can sort of take out so kind of like some of the things i mentioned earlier you can look at well if it's fantasy games then you you know you're looking at various uh, monsters and races and things like that um and magic items and whatnot with a, a call of cthulhu based game then a lot of it is about the setting um so whilst we can take the game we can play it in any period whether it be modern day or futuristic or historic the kind of standard setting is is uh, the one that Lovecraft wrote in, which is the 1920s. So a lot of information about that 1920s setting. So so that's kind of pulled out, That's that's and there's a, a big chunk on that in the rule book. So we, we look at the stories, but we don't really try to repeat the stories. We try and pull elements out of them that people can then uh, use in their own games. I think a, bit, a little bit like cookery, you know, you're, you're sort of identifying various ingredients that somebody else can sort of take and put together to make their own meal uh, in their own fashion. Yeah, I mean, that, that strip mining analogy, I think, in terms of role-playing games, is exactly what we should be doing, mm. is um, stripping out all the... You know, you could take your favourite TV show and try and pull out all the interesting things out of it. You don't want to retell the same story. You know, you don't want to retell um, Breaking Bad or whatever it might be uh, exactly, but you can pull out a bunch of elements from it and weave them together in kind of cooperation with the players. And this is where it kind of perhaps becomes a bit like, you know, I've not written a script with people for a TV show, but I get the impression very much, you know, with the, um, the American TV shows, it's a very kind of collaborative um, process where they sort of come together to, to write the scripts. And I think, you know, there's perhaps an aspect of that, of sort of throwing ideas into the pot. And then, you know, 
to a larger degree in, in role-playing games who kind of do that. You know, the players are sort of throwing ideas in and doing things and interacting what you put on the with what you put on the table and changing the flow of events to create a, you know, a dynamic story. As a counterpoint to that, I mean, Mike, Chaosium did actually publish what was has of really a, which was very explicitly you know, drawing on some some Lovecraft. Yeah, they were like continuations. I mean, Lovecraft didn't really write any novels; he wrote some novelettes, but mainly short stories. Uh, and so um, there is a, a collection, a scenario collection, as Scott's House of Relay, which which basically takes the concept. Well, the short story ended here. What happened next, or what happens ten years down the road? And so there's a set of scenarios that kind of take that as a premise. Um, so as you know, using the stories as the, you know the foundation for the the next story in in, in that kind of uh, chronology f- uh, of those particular characters or, or events. And that you know that that was you know um, uh, well received. And and so you know often you find um, in you know Call of Cthulhu scenarios you have little callbacks or little references. The scenario isn't particularly about what Lovecraft wrote, but there's little themes or there's little callbacks or Little little kind of cherries to find um, that um, you know harken back to those things if if you know what you're looking for, I guess. And another huge aspect of of, um, uh, of the way that that the two relate um, is licensed games. We, we probably tend to see more these days based on uh, films and TV series. But for a long time, licensed RPGs were very much informed by fiction. Um, So uh, the the first ever licensed game, as far as I can tell, uh, goes against that, which was a a Star Trek one back in 1978. In 1981, there was a whole rash of them uh, from Chaosium. Yeah, I mean, Uh, um, you mentioned Michael Moorcock. So um, D&D had kind of, you know, Use its kind of alignment system of you know how people behave from from the Moorcockian kind of fiction, um, but kind of Kesin went sort of one step further and actually you know uh, got a license with with Michael Moorcock to produce uh, the well there's they came under a different sort of range but Stormbringer Eternal Champion and whatnot they're, they're all kind of games but set within the uh, you know very firmly in the Moorcockian universe uh, and um, and following you know very closely to to his works that was you know one of them but also that was not long later, followed by Pendragon, which you know comes directly um, out of the you know the Tales of Arthur, um, and particularly um, you know uh, Mallory's uh, Mort Arthur and uh, and the whole kind of literary genre of the King Arthur mythology game coming out of that, which technically isn't a license because there, there was no license, <laughs> but it's you know definitely spr- you know springs from the literary source, um, and there's you know and, and that continues this day, you know. Um, George R. R. Martin, Game of Thrones, you know, he used to role-play, uh, and he particularly used to play one of Chaosium's old games, which was Superworld, liked his superheroes, um, and did, you know, run that for a long time. And then and if you go and find, you can go and find um, George R. R. Martin's wildcard books of superhero fiction, which are all based on his role-playing games. Well, it wasn't just yeah. him. It was yeah. his, his, his entire role-playing group at that time was all writers, and as they played this, the superhero campaign in Superworld, they all basically kind of went off and wrote stories about their characters, and that became the first wildcard collection. And these wildcard books have been going now since, uh, I did make a note somewhere, something like 1987. So, you know, that's 30 years on. And apparently, um, I think, I can't remember who it is, it's HBO or AMC or some television company recently bought the license to them. So there may be a wildcard TV series coming out at long last. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, th- th- this this has been a really interesting sort of crossover. You know, very much like we're talking about the merging of the two worlds, in that you know these are people. You know, th- these are writers who are playing in this world. Who you know sometimes are sitting around the gaming table rolling dice together, and sometimes are just writing stories and doing things to each other's characters, but sort of building up this rich continuity and world between them. And yeah, it's 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 a fascinating bleed through between the two. There was another very similar bleed through, which was actually one of Chaosium's earliest licensed games, uh, which was Thieves World. Oh yeah, Thieves. Yeah, um, which was a very similar kind of thing. Um, I don't know whether it came out of role-playing in the first place, but it certainly feels like it should have. Um, and again, it was collections of short stories written by uh, bunches of writers who were sharing this world between them. They, yeah, they, this, this rather scummy city called Sanctuary. Yeah, they, they, they each had their own characters, and they wrote the stories where they you know, sort of interacted and intersected with each other's characters and, and, and developed this, this mesh between them, very much in the style of a role-playing game. Mm. Um, Became a you know supplement that became a multi-system supplement. One of the first, yeah. I think it may have been the first, uh, where you could use it with a variety of all, all the all the current role-playing games at the time. Uh, you had you know <coughs> the mechanics for all of them in in the in the Thieves World box, so it had a kind of a you know a wide appeal and uh, is looked back very fondly on by many many old-time role players. Oh yeah, I believe I've still got all my Thieves World books and the box set. <laughs> But of course, I mean the, the the first licensed game that that came out of all this, uh, the first literary licensed game was Call of Cthulhu. Mm. Yeah, yeah, which was clearly you know that um, Arkham House had the rights um, to uh, Lovecraft's kind of literary legacy, so there was a a license from Chaosium to them to publish the Call of Cthulhu game. Um, so yes, it, yeah, absolutely true. I mean, it's one, one of it's certainly the one of the largest and most popular in terms of the you know longevity and and when it came out in terms of the kind of this comes out of the book kind of you know rather than some just someone's head as it were but i mean it's it's interesting i mean you talk about it just coming out of someone's head i mean there were a few other games that came out of the 70s which again you know almost seemed more like fiction uh, in that they they were the product of people creating these vast complex worlds that weren't even necessarily designed originally for role playing games, which ended up becoming them. I mean, the, oh. the, the the first one was yeah, Empire of the Petal Throne, which was one of the first role playing games published back in 1975, just after D and D, and it was this academic called M A R Barker who created this this fantastically rich science fiction fantasy world, influenced a lot by Mesoamerican myths. It's gone through a number of incarnations. It's, you know, all these years later, it's still never really caught on. But it, he ended up writing a number of tie-in books uh, about it. And I think a great many of its fans ended up appreciating it more as fiction than as a game, the, the, just because of the, the kind of world he created. You got, you know, you, you know obviously, with the cares inside, you got... Um, well, the game was known as RuneQuest, but the setting was Galanthra, which the setting happened before the game. Mm. Um, Greg Stafford in the uh, late 60s into the 70s was kind of coming, designing this this kind of um, world called Galanthra. Um, I was looking for I was looking for ways to kind of realise it, and, and it actually, actually was first realised as a board game, but um, soon after um, came out as a role-playing game called RuneQuest, 
and that's come out in various iterations over the years. And you know, next year we'll see the the, kind of the new iteration of RuneQuest in Galanthra, uh, which kind of brings it full circle to some degree. But you know, certainly, you know, Greg's work stems from that kind of fictional basis. Yeah. And um, you touched on George R. R. Martin earlier. I mean, there there are a great many writers who have been influenced certainly by role-playing games who have played RPGs that have then uh, ended up becoming fiction. I, I've, I've still yet to find you know, sort of a categorical discussion of it, but um, I do remember reading somewhere that, uh, that, that A Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones uh, actually started out as, as George R. R. Martin's GURPS campaign back in the 1980s, which, yeah, I, I can certainly believe. Um, you know, the... Uh, Jim Butcher's Dresden Files started out as, as you know, him playing uh, White Wolf's mage, uh, the Ascension. You know, the character he created there, he you know, sort of got so involved with that he ended up writing stories about them, and that became this this popular series of novels, and then a TV series, very short lived, um, and then going full circle, ended up becoming a role playing game again, as did you know, you know, um, A Song of Ice and Fire, and so yeah, we we, we do sort of see this this sort of Kind of, I'd call it a virtuous circle of the two just feeding back into each other over and over again. Yeah, we, we've seen it time and time again. You know, you've mentioned some of the popular ones, but probably one of the one of the earlier ones that we most people recognise is Dragonlance, isn't it? With Margaret, oh, yeah. Margaret Weiss and um, Tracy Aikman. It started off as a, a series of you know adventures for Dungeons and Dragons set in a you know a unique kind of setting, this Dragonlance setting that, that very swiftly. They, you know, once had written the scenarios and they were obviously, you know, wanted to continue that creation kind of process. It very quickly became novels and stories and, and kind of became it became a whole kind of subgenre within itself. Yeah, and, and I suppose the, the, the most popular current example of this uh, is The Expanse. It started out as a role-playing game. Um, the, the, the two chaps who wrote, who wrote it under the name James S.A. Uh, Corey uh, sort of developed this world as an RPG background, but they never actually developed the RPG to go with it. They ended up writing novels instead, which then became a popular TV series. And now, again, going full circle is now going to become a licensed role-playing game. So, you know, it, it, it all just goes around and feeds back into each other. It's, it's, it touches back to a point we talked about a little while back about you can just play a role-playing game like a board game you can just play as a game but for many people it is a creative process that actually spurs you to be creative not only in the game but beyond the game whether you become somebody who actually writes adventures for other people to play or you get inspired by your character and decide to illustrate and artistically go that way or you know write fiction it does it is it is one of those kind of um hobbies that is very creative and if you've got a a bit of creativity in you it does tend to kind of push you to do something it's one of it's one of those things i think it's a creative process without doing any writing or without doing any artwork or anything like that if you're just a creative player um and i know some people who you know i love being in games with because i know when i sit down as a player and play with them they just come up with all sorts of well, perhaps crazy ideas, but just entertaining ideas or just yeah. really, really fun to play with. And, you know, you, I always sort of think, you know, when you're playing a, a role-playing game, you've got an audience of maybe four or five people, but you're each other's audience. So it's a quite a, an intimate experience, really, because you're not... Nobody else is going to see it or experience it. It's just you, half dozen people around the table. Um, and that can be 
something that you can be talking about, you know, if you meet those friends again in 10 years' time, you know, some of those instances that just happen around the table, you, you, you'd be like, oh, do you remember when so-and-so did that? And it seems bizarre to sort of think that would be the case, but you can get so into it and so many, you just get so woven up into the story and into the, into the characters. It creates, what's it, cre- it creates a communal shared experience. Yeah. It, it, it is a vehicle to do that, unlike, you know, unlike many other things. It, yeah. It's a real, because it spurs you to do a bit of, you know, a bit of improvisational acting or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, it, cre- and it creates drama. It's set up to create drama um, and situations to explore that, that, it, the ingredients are there. If it's going to happen, it will happen because the ingredients are there, and with the right, you know, the right set of people around the table, um, sometimes it just really sparks and creates that memorable communal experience. As you say, that ten years later you meet meet a person you've seen for ten years, but you remember that game you had, and you can suddenly be lost in another hour of chatting about. Oh, do you remember when that happened? Yeah. And, it's a, and it's a real shared experience. So. I mean, one thing that fascinates me on that front is um, the way that people become fascinated by by other people's games. Um, we've seen a rise recently in actual play podcasts, uh, which people seem to listen to in the same kind of way as they listened to um, radio theatre years ago. Um, you, you get the same thing on YouTube, and, and um, you, you were mentioning recently, Mike, the popularity of um, what are referred to as replays. Uh, the, you are, do, do you want to explain? Yeah, that well, that? I mean, um, in, in Japan, uh, role-playing games are uh, uh, you know, very popular, and I can only speak for Call of Cthulhu, but certainly Call of Cthulhu is very popular in Japan, and uh, it's predominantly popular. Its largest player base are, are female female gamers. One of the one of the things that's really kind of become a real thing in, in in that community is people actually playing the game, but then writing um, the story of the game. That they, they they then fictionalise what they have played. Uh, as Scott said, they're called replays, and these are massively popular in Japan. They are they they actually go beyond the gaming field. That people who aren't gamers will pick them up and read them. You know, it's uh, it's a real a real thing. I mean, it, it both uh, kind of encourages and and confuses me because I, I remember you know us having discussions ages ago uh, about. I mean, this was when you were in the early stages of redeveloping Call of Cthulhu. We were talking, I think, about whether it was A, possible, or B, advisable to try to create a game that would reproduce the experience of a Lovecraft story, that what you end up with is is very different than a, a story, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think the literature inspires the role-playing games, and the role-playing games can inspire the literature sometimes. But I think they are two distinctly different things. So... When I sit down to play a game, I don't necessarily sit down to emulate fiction or emulate literature or emulate TV. You know, it is a unique experience. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a, a different art form, I guess. Yeah. But but one that, that, as Mike said earlier, does certainly foster creativity. I mean, oh, yeah. When, when I was reading up on this, I was struck by just how many writers there are out there, and not just the kinds of writers you might think, who have been inspired by playing role-playing games. You know, not all of them still do, but you know, an awful lot. I mean, you know, there, there are some you know, fairly obvious ones. Uh, China Mieville, for example, you know, the, the creator of the, the Bass Lag books and uh, you know, very popular fantasy and weird fiction author. You know, it certainly credits a lot of his creative process or you know, how he got into creating these worlds to playing D&D as a teenager. I mean, Charles Stross uh, 
you know, popular science fiction uh, and horror author who created the Laundry books, again, which are now licensed role-playing games, um, yeah, again, got his start uh, writing material for D&D. You see kind of outliers there. I was reading earlier about a chap called Juno Diaz, uh, who won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction a few years ago. He's a professor of creative writing at MIT, and he credits it all to having played D&D as a teenager. Um, again, he doesn't actually you know, play it now, but he said that you know, he kind of taught him about characterization and, and sort of creating uh, worlds. And this, the, the, I think this kind of process... Is is like catnip to well, it. I, was say, I mean, if you've got writer's block, I mean, surely mm. I'll just go and, you know, I'll just go around the group and have a game tonight and not worry about a bit come away inspired. I mean you can't can't almost can't help but be sometimes by a, a good, you know, role playing game session, come away kind of like feeling kind mm. of inspired, you know, in some way. You kinda of think it's a it's perfect antidote to writer's block almost. <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, I mean, one one thing that that kind of really preyed in my mind for a great many years is I I, I started out as a fiction writer. I, I sort of drifted into RPGs, and one thing that I found fairly early on was I, and you write fiction as well, don't you, Mike? Mm. So I I wonder whether this is your experience as well that when I was younger, the more I played RPGs the less fiction, or the more I ran RPGs particularly, the less fiction I ended up writing. Because it like it, it, it sort of ended up scratching that creative itch. It, 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 it certainly does. And, and it's a timing thing. You know, you only have so much time in the day and, and you've got to make a choice sometimes whether, you know, am I going to write this short story? Am I going to write this scenario? And, you know, sometimes you have to make a choice. And sometimes, you know, one of them you think, well, one of them I, could, I know I can sell. <laughs> yeah, yes. in, a, in a very mercenary way, you know. One of them I know I can sell. One of them I don't know. I'm just, you know, I could send it out and maybe something might pick it up. But but you know, there's, there's certainly that you've got to acknowledge that that's a side to it. Certainly in terms of professional writing, um, but certainly you're right. I mean, it does almost. I mean, you know, don't quote me, but sometimes <laughs> sometimes I'm, I'm you know I edit a lot of role playing stuff. I write a lot of role playing stuff. And I, I look at the process I do for that as opposed to when I just sit down and write a short story. It's a lot more complicated doing the role-playing stuff. Oh, no kidding. It's a lot more complicated. <laughs> and, um, you know, in some sense, you know, when I sit down and write fiction, I go, oh, this is, you know, not, not a breeze, but it, compared to some of the work I do role-playing, it's a yeah. breeze. You know, because I haven't got to worry about, you know, accuracy of certain things. I can, you know, it's imaginative. I can just, I can just decide in this universe I'm writing what it's going to be. Well, it's it's not just that. I mean, as Paul was touching upon when we, you know, we were talking about, you know, what you you actually put down on the page for um, when you're writing role playing games, you're you're creating a toolkit there. You're creating the the, the ingredients that someone else is going to use to mm. um, to have fun. Though it it bears some superficial resemblance to a story, it isn't one because you, you, you don't get to decide what happens. The, story, aren't you? the best scenarios also when you read them, I think, inspire you to sort of think what you could do with it, and perhaps that's your own take. So you know, if you all had a the role playing game scenario out of the book, if it's a good one, then you take it away and you each run it, it, it for for your friends. Each time it's very different. So I think the best scenarios kind of inspire the, the person running the game to be creative with it. Um, there's all those elements that are in there, the characters, the places, the themes, the little plot threads and so on. And, and yeah, you can kind of weave those together and make it interesting in your own personal way, I think. I, 
you, out of the three of us, you're, you're the only one who's never actually written any fiction. Is that right, or not much? Or? Nothing published. All right, but I mean, do, do you ever do, do you ever find that writing or playing role playing games inspires you to want to write fiction, or do, do you feel like they're completely different things? I feel like they are different things. Yeah, I think they're, they're quite different things. I mean, in answer to what you were saying about you know, working on how many projects, that this is what made me think, so how many projects you can be working on at once. And I know for myself, if I'm working on a project, I don't really like to have loads of projects that I'm working on because I'm at work in the day and I can't think about the project then, but then, you know, in my downtime, I'll be thinking about this project and then things that will happen. So if it's, you know, I try to sort of be on one track and work on one project. If I've got a bunch of them on the go at once, it's kind of harder, I think. When we're working on the Call of Cthulhu rules, I'd sort of, you know, I'd go to sleep thinking about it and I'd wake up thinking about it um, for quite a long time. So, yeah, it was kind of pretty much an obsession, I think. Um, but I don't think that's any different from you could you could have said the same thing about writing, you know, you're writing a novel. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. If, if yeah. you're writing a novel, I'm sure, you know, I can only imagine that, you know, um, established novelists or novelists are have very much the same it's constantly going through and just you know they meet somebody in the hotel lobby or whatever outside and that, that sparks off an idea and they're going to jot it down quickly and it's the same with role-playing games you know every time i see a film or, or something i'm sort of thinking you know either that inspires an idea for a game or you know or a book it, it might inspire an idea for a setting element or often i sort of think well how would you handle that with in, in a game in the game mechanics mm. And it did seem for, for some time that uh, almost every uh, role-playing publisher, or at least every role-playing, big role-playing publisher, as I mentioned earlier with TSR, was putting out their own fiction line. I mean, Chaosium is, is rekindling theirs at the moment. Yeah, I mean, Chaosium's had a... I mean, obviously, with the game, the game arising out of a lot of fiction that already existed, one of the obvious things to do back in the kind of the, uh, the late 80s into the 90s was to collect some of that fiction together, which was still relatively hard to find at that mm. point. You know, there was a lot of quite, um, you know, short stories written by diverse authors that were just not in print. So gathering those together in, in kind of collections, uh, themed collections, just obviously made a lot of sense to do and obviously supported the game in their own way. In that, in that sense, they kind of mutually supported one another. And Chaosim's had a kind of a you know, long history of kind of producing and putting out anthologies of, of short stories and, and a few novels going forwards we, we you know we, we're looking to actually um, really revitalize that line you know we had, we had a really interesting anthology out a couple of years ago um, uh, Casilda's song which was a, an anthology of, of all, all female writers around the you've taken the theme of Robert Ch- Robert W chambers King in yellow uh, that, that, those kind of themes um, and that um, uh, one of the stories in there won, won, a, won, a, won an award and so we, yeah, we are kind of rekindling and relaunching the fiction line and sort of particularly um, not only just reprinting some old stuff, you know, back from the, the early 20th century, but actually, you know, driving forward with some, you know, more contemporary, you know, quite exciting and, um, you know, interesting takes on not only the Cthulhu mythos, but, you know, wide, the wider genre in general. I mean, and, and when I think of a, a lot of role-playing fiction, it tends to be stuff that's that's... Filling out the game world, or you know, perhaps is inspired by the games that people have run. But am I right in thinking that the, the kind of Call of Cthulhu fiction, you know, is, has traditionally been very different than that? 
in, in that it's, you know, you, you talk about the way it's been reprinting a lot of older stuff and keeping those in print and, mm. and perhaps, you know, sort of, you know, creating a, you know, keeping a canon in print for, you know, what inspired the game rather than fiction being inspired by the game in turn. Certainly, it's, it's, it's become both things. Certainly, over the last 10 years, in terms of Chaosium's fiction, there, are, there have been collections of stories that are clearly inspired from the gaming experience, that, that some, of, some of them may actually be kind of you know, secretly written up versions of people's games or, or just stories inspired through gaming, uh, as, as well as, you know, um, people that have navigated who are, you know, are clearly writers, uh, you know, who are just, you know, taking elements of the, of the kind of horror mythos, uh, the Cthulhu mythos, and uh, elaborating it in their own way that kind of meets a kind of uh, a thematic thing. So you know, since it's, you know, a set of stories set in the in the in the old west, or a set of steampunk stories, or or cyberpunk, but with a kind of uh, you know a Cthulhu bent to them to some degree. So you know, which are all obviously original works and and you know coming out of um, you know contemporary writers. Sometimes it seems like um, the, these gaming, uh, sorry, these these fiction spin-offs from gaming lines can take on lives of their own. And in in your previous life, you were involved very heavily with Warhammer Forty K, weren't you? Yeah. And and the, the the fiction that came out of that ended up being massively popular, wasn't well, it? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, when I worked for Games Workshop, it, 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 it you know tend to be called by Games Workshop the the Games Workshop hobby. But what that actually means is there's three things. There's three types of people that generally Tend to enjoy uh, the kind of uh, the Warhammer or the Warhammer Forty Thousand kind of settings, and you're either a gamer, you're either a kind of um, a creative doer, so like a painter or modeler, um, or you're into the fiction. And sometimes all three of those are in one person. At the times they could be distinct people, uh, and so the fiction was a very you know the, the Warhammer Forty Thousand background, in particular. Um, is quite, you know, a lot of people find it quite inspiring in terms of it. It pulls them in in terms of its own mythos and backstory. Um, and so that very, very early in the day became, you know, became fictionalised in, in comics and, uh, and novels. And, um, you know, Games Workshop said there was its own fiction line, Black Library, um, that continues to put out, you know, bestsellers um, and... Um, you know, now a, a you know long and, and very successful heritage of you know producing original sci-fi and fantasy fiction within the within the um, you know the settings of the you know, warm and warmer forty thousand settings um, with some you know big name who are now big name authors. You know, mm-hmm. Dan Abnett is you know written for all manner of things and is you know very respected in that in that sense and as well as you know many others. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's certainly um, and then you know that through that spurred you know. You know, there's a war game, Warhammer 40,000, and there's fiction. Hey, shouldn't there be a role-playing game that kind of marries it all together? Mm-hmm. And hence, you know, um, Black Industries was formed and, and Dark Heresy, the first uh, Warhammer 40,000 role-playing game was produced, which obviously I, I worked on at the time. Yeah, but it all, all goes around. It all feeds into the same thing, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So uh, to, to sort of try to wrap all this this up and bring the threads together, I mean, one thing we've we've sort of been dancing around a little bit is what the difference between fiction and role playing games is. I mean, you, you've you've talked about the difference in writing them and, and the construction, but 
leaving aside the writing side of things, I mean, how would you, you know, typify the difference between the two experiences of, of playing a role-playing game as opposed to, you know, say, say you know, AGM or has, has either taken a published scenario or written something and is presenting that to you. How would you typify the experience as differing from, from uh, reading a story? Well, I think it differs in many ways. I mean, one key aspect that I would say, and harking back to a question you asked earlier about the difference um, <coughs> in trying to emulate a, a Lovecraft story, is that often stories, and particularly with Lovecraft, are written through the eyes of one protagonist. Um, whereas typically in a role-playing game, you've got not one player, but you've got maybe four or five players and one person running the game. So you've got a whole bunch of main characters, if you like. You know, I guess the main difference there really is the interactivity of it, that you are, in, as a player, I don't know if I can say it's improvising. It's not wholly improvised, because there is often a structure that the, that the games master has got that they're going to, to present to the players. But it's, it's that interaction, I think. So you, when you're reading a story, it's fixed, it's on the page, it can be great, uh, and one can get totally immersed in it. And there's that same immersion in a role-playing game, well, there can be, um, but it's that you know, shared that experience. It, what, shared experience. One is clearly a solo experience, more, more, more or yeah. less it's a solo experience. And the other, it tends to be, in the main, a, a commun- communal experience where you're, you're sharing that experience together. So that's, You're exercising yeah. your own creativity. Yeah. Well, and I think there's also another very crucial difference, which is there in the name, which is that it's a game. We, we, we perhaps gloss over this sometimes because with Call of Cthulhu, we, we really see sort of the story as being at the forefront there. But, I mean, there's a huge variety of, of role-playing games, some of which you know, are much more about... Uh, the mechanical aspect of it, they're about tactical play, they're about the acquisition of power. Uh, sometimes, it, you know, on very rare occasions, you get games like Aegon or Rune, which are actually even competitive, where you've got players competing against each other and, and amassing scores. Yeah, I think that is a big difference. Usually it is a, a, a thing of acquisition, you know, like Monopoly, where you're going around the floor trying to get the most money. Uh, one could see an aspect of a game like Dungeons & Dragons in terms of you know, gaining power, gaining treasure, and so on. Um, whereas a game like Call of Cthulhu, I think, very much sets itself apart in that it's a game about, you know, a descending spiral. See, complete antithesis of what <laughs> yes. you just said. Yeah. That, is, that you're actually not gaining anything, you're tending to lose. And I think that's, that's, yeah. that, in part, accounts for a lot of its appeal and why it's been around for 36 years, is that it caters to a very different audience. It offers something very <coughs> different to... The usual, and I think people like, you know, they like the story of, you know, the D&D character that goes out and slays lots of monsters and gets all the goods. But they also like the story of the downtrodden person who loses everything and everything goes terribly wrong. I don't know why we like that, <laughs> but we do. Well, then, one, one last provocative question for each of you uh, to, to wrap things up, which is, do you think a role-playing game can ever actually be literature? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to expand on that? Or? Well, I'm not, I'm not saying it is yet, but I think I think it is a. I think it's an emergent art form. You know, it's only been going what forty years. Yeah, forty three years. Forty three years. I think it's you know I think I call, call it emergent. 
I'm not sure we've reached the pinnacle of it yet. Having seen, having been there for most of it, um, I've seen how the page in the role playing book has developed, and it, you know, from you know quite meagre beginnings, quite sparsely written, to quite you know involved and in depth and um, you know creative expression on the page, and I think that that continues, and we see that not only. You know, not only I'm yeah, looking at the history of Call of Cthulhu and comparing like a scenario that was written in 1983 to one written yesterday, is a massive difference, a massive jump in terms of technical ability and and uh, how it looks and how it reads. Um, and it's not just that game; but there are you know the, across role playing. I think you know we're seeing we're seeing these sparks of kind of like yeah, to kind of highlight what it could become. And so I think it is entirely possible that that one day. I don't think it's seen like that at the moment. I think it's seen as a game, um, which is fair because that's what it is. But um, I don't think it's yet realised its full potential in that way. I think it could do. I think when I've come to write, when I've come to read role playing games books, sometimes you know some of them I found a bit of a challenge. Sometimes they can be a bit dry or you know not so engaging. But I sat down to read one recently. Uh, and I thought, I kind of got to read the whole thing before I can even approach running this. And then I got about a third of the way through, and I thought, this is really just really entertaining reading. Um, and it's The Lair of the Blue Medusa by Patrick Stewart and Zach Smith. And I'm not actually sure some of the parts I would know how to run, but it's <laughs> really entertaining reading and really exciting uh, to me. Whether that counts as literature, I'm not sure, but... I think we get hooked upon labels, and I think literature may be the wrong word, but I think it's a serious form of entertainment. And, and, and potentially an art form. Yeah, I think so. Given, given the amount of creativity that goes into the production of these books, I think it is, yeah. Right, well, thank you. Well, let's open this up to questions from the audience now. Uh, does anyone have any questions? Uh, oh, sorry, I think your hand went up first, Andy. <coughs> Um, something I wanted to touch on, you kind of lightly touched on, and I do agree with, with Mike that I think role playing is an art form, not just producing the books, but in the actual running of it. It's, it's a performance art to some extent. One of the things that I, I think it does, and I wondered what your opinion is, is the fact that obviously with literature and when you're writing a book, you can develop themes. You know, you might have a particular theme on racism or a particular, you know, how people's viewpoints differ. And in role playing, you actually can explore that through multiple experiences with if you're a writer or even if you're trying to explore it through the viewpoints of the characters you've created you're really taking it from your own observations and your own experience whereas with a role-playing game you've got four five six experiences around the table to give that additional sort of thematic input and um, when you run these games multiple times you can see that from multiple viewpoints there's a particular point in one of the Call of Cthulhu campaigns I'm not going to mention the exact moment but there's a particular moral decision in uh, Beyond the Mountains of Madness that plays oh, yeah. the sure. And when you face different people with it, the, the, the wealth of reactions to that theme are very informative from a creative process. And I wonder how you, know, how you feel about exploring themes like that from a table, how that differs from a literary standpoint as, as sort of like novel writers and role-playing GMs. Okay, so just to summarise that, um, how do we explore themes in, in role-playing games? I, one thing I'd, I'd sort of start off by, not, not necessarily challenging, but at least commenting on, is 
Yeah, having spoken to a number of people who've uh, who've written novels and um, you know read a lot of interviews with novelists, it's surprising how often they aren't. You know, the people writing these things aren't aware of the themes in in their books until they've actually written them. This tends to be something that that emerges spontaneously rather than you know I'm going to sit down and and write a, a book about racism. Um, you know, in an earlier event at this this festival, I was interviewing a, a local fantasy author called A. F. E. Smith, and that, that was actually something very specifically I asked her, which is you know do you set out to put these themes in in, in your books? And you know she actually started said you know no you know this is something that I, I sort of discovered through the writing, but and you know I'll be influenced by things that I see on the news or things I read while I'm writing it. But, you know, I never set out to put sort of messages or specific themes or stuff like that in the books because that feels very sort of preachy and didactic. I, I probably actually feel much the same way about RPGs. I mean, there, there, there are certainly you know a few scenarios I've written where I've perhaps set out to explore something in particular. Um, there's a scenario I wrote a while back called uh, Bleak Prospect, which was... I, uh, yeah, it was certainly income inequality was very much on my mind when I, I, I wrote that one. But as far as it being a specific exploration of that theme, no, it was just <clears throat> sort of something that informed it. Um, how about you two? Yeah, I can't think that I purposefully set out to explore a theme. Um, no, I can't really think I do. I think these things might kind of be there you know in in the writing and be there generated through play but it's not something that i have in mind not that i can think of yeah what i think i do is start off with writing trying to just write a good scenario and that's the focus and if anything comes out through that then great that's a bonus but i don't i, I think you know the more scenarios you do the more that you know if you have a particular thought you know like, like scott said you know something something you think you know you're thinking of anyway they all tend to you know worm their way in in some way and sometimes that becomes more pronounced than you thought it did but also to touch, touch back on one of the things you said about sharing that kind of situation again where there may be a moral dilemma for instance uh, and the actual exploring that moral dilemma through play with by playing that kind of same scene if you're running the game with different groups of people and how how different people in different groups of people interact with that dilemma is um, is educational to some degree. It, 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 because obviously people, you know, which tend to be what books are written about, people are always fascinating. That's why there are so many books and films and stuff. Because, I mean, ultimately they are about people. They're, yeah, some are about situations, but tend to be people <coughs> reacting to those situations. And, that, you know, people are ultimately in a very interesting and continue to be a very interesting subject. So what role-playing does, it, it puts a bunch of people, a small number of people in a normally a very tense or dramatic situation and, and says, what's going to happen now? And and so, in a way, you know, it's, as I say, it's kind of educational sometimes because, you know, you, you have unexpected results, which often are not only entertaining but informative. Yeah, and uh, on the subject of, of moral quandaries, I mean, you know, certainly I may not set out to do them, you know, put them in games because they're exploring particular themes, but uh, I do love putting you know, moral quandaries in games because those tend to provoke the most lively 
you know, active role-playing at the table. Uh, if we get a bunch of people, you know, who cannot see a clear, simple outcome, whatever outcome there is going to be is going to hurt someone, and they debate over it, then, yeah, you, you've got probably got yourself an interesting session. I mean, it depends on your group. Some people are going to find that boring. But most role-players I know like a good argument. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately, Matt Sanderson couldn't be with us this evening. He's ill. Uh, but he wrote a fantastic scenario recently that was published in uh, the World War Cthulhu uh, uh, scenario anthology, uh, Covert Actions, a scenario called Cadenza. And it all revolves around a very particular moral conflict. And I, I did actually sit in on him running that at a convention. It, it, it was a four, I think a four hour convention slot. And the first two hours was, was sort of role playing and, and learning what was going on and a bit of investigation. And then about two hours in, they hit this, this moral quandary. And there was, then there was just two hours of debate between the players. And they loved every second of it. Um, they really got their teeth into it and, and, um, yeah, it, it was it was really entertaining to watch. And you used up the next six hours of the four-hour slot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Right. Uh, sorry, you had a question, did you? Um, yeah, I was just wondering, have you ever had a situation where you have had um, literacy writing, something that you haven't been able to think of how you're going to progress it, and instead you've made it into an RPG to find out the different ways that people... Reply and as a follow-up <laughs> question, have you found a scenario in which there has been like a TV show or a film or a book? It's like, oh, that'd be great to make into an RPG, but you just can't find a way in which you could make the mechanics work. Um, okay, so two two parts to that question. Um, one is, you know, do, do we ever uh, run or play RPGs as a way of developing fiction or, you know, coming over, you know, breaking past um, uh, writer's block? And second. Um, yeah, you know, are there any particular uh, media that that we've consumed that you know, we think would would be a a great RPG, but we can't work out how to make that work? Do you want Do you want to try the first one? Well, I'm not a, a somebody who's looking at it as a vehicle to writing fiction per se, but I mean, certainly in developing um, the scenarios and so on, it's very easy to hit blocks on that. I think mm. because not only are you as, a, as an author of a scenario, you're not writing a story. You might have a, a kind of an overarching story in mind, but you're, you're writing it in such a way that a group of people can play characters that will go through that story. The worst place to start with, I think, is something we've often done is like, oh, wouldn't it be great if it ends like this? Oh, God, <laughs> then, no. How are we going to get there? That's a nightmare. Um, so no. it's, whereas if you were writing a... a fiction then you are in complete control of, of all the events and yes it can still present lots of problems but with with um with a role-playing game i think it's a different set of problems to to structure a scenario and you know often i find you know a way through hitting problems is to talk through the, the scenario with someone or to um and sort of bounce just play it off. yeah just just play test it knowing that you haven't really got any point further than that but the players don't know and see what see what happens when you get to it because it may actually be that you actually haven't got a problem because actually oh yeah actually they the problem I thought was there didn't exist or actually the players have helped me to kind of find yeah. some different ways through it perhaps it's not you know not saying that you know you do it all the time but that is certainly a possibility isn't it but but have you ever used an RPG as a way of developing fiction no. No, and, and neither have I. I mean, I've always approached. It seems like an obvious thing, things. doesn't it? It yeah. seems so obvious 
to say, oh, you know, I need a story. Let's have a game, yeah. and then I'll join write it up because there you go, it's a story. But it, it doesn't seem to work like that. I don't know. No, no. Yeah. I think you are inspired, but maybe you may not inspired, but you are informed perhaps sometimes. And again, you know, all these thoughts rattle around the head, don't they? And they some, sometimes come out subconsciously, but. And I think part of that is, I mean, what we were going back to earlier, um, which is that that fiction and RPGs are fundamentally very different things. When I'm thinking about writing a story, I, I have a very different set of considerations in mind in terms of you know, what the characters are doing, um, you know, how the characters are going to behave, which is something that I don't really think of when I'm, I'm writing an RPG, and, and where it's all going, what the end is going to be, which, again, I don't think of when I'm writing an RPG. Building on what Mike was saying, I mean, when it comes to an RPG, you know, quite often, particularly for early versions of stuff that I'm working on, I will just turn up with an opening scene and a rough idea and just see what happens. And it is a process of pure exploration. I don't find writing fiction works anywhere near the same way. And I don't find, personally, what comes out of an RPG session necessarily to be that related to how I'd create fiction. It's interesting... Um, that I think when you're running, you're running your own scenario, let's say, or you're running the game, your mind is. I, I, for me, my mind is so much on running the game, ensuring that everyone, mm. everyone's got a chance to play a part. No one feels left out. That I'm trying to remember the plot and keep that ticking along. And I've got a lot of jobs to do as a games runner to some degree, and just basically ensuring everyone's having a good time. To be honest, you know, whilst the plot and the story is obviously a consideration, an important one. My mind is on other things as well, so it's not something like that. Whereas if I'm playing in the game and I'm not running it, my, my focus on the story is that much greater, perhaps, that that, that maybe um, it's easy to go away and think, actually, I could write that up. Whereas I, I could come away from running a game, I have no idea how I'd write that session up if I was yeah. going to write this fiction. But as a player, I could almost see that, actually, I could walk away and go, yeah, I could write it what we kind of did, then, then mm. kind of take it somewhere and elaborate it. So maybe, maybe as a player, it might be more... Oh, fate is, I don't know. But, but I haven't really cared to do that. Um, and uh, moving on to the second part of the question, have, have you encountered at any stage any, you know, any films, books, television, where you thought that would make a great role-playing game, but you can't work out how to make it happen mechanically? Who got an answer, Mike? I'm, I was just thinking, well, all, everything I watch, it comes along. <laughs> yeah, that could be good. That could be good. Like, so everything I watch is kind of an idea. But Yeah, I think uh, I take inspiration from lots of little bits but I don't tend to try and emulate a whole um, TV show or story or whatever no but I, I remember having a conversation with you a while back where you were talking about how when you were watching films or television there was always that part of your mind that was sitting there trying to work out oh how would I do that in an well, RPG or how yeah, would, like, how, but, but how would I create yeah. mechanics to, to yeah. actually you know, well, we had a great to, we had, I mean yeah. the best example I think we had is when we were kind of in the middle of um talking through the, the combat roles, particularly gunfire and things like that in, in, in the new edition of Call of Cthulhu. Uh, and we were both watching Boardwalk Empire at the time. And there's that fantastic end of series three, perhaps, where, where um, I can't remember, it's so a while ago now, but the character basically walks into the house, is tooled oh, off, yeah. and just yeah. takes out an entire kind so, of army of gangsters. So Richard, what's his face with the mind? Yes, with, yeah, with, the, with, with the, partial, the facial processes. Yes. Yeah. Um, just walks in, just yeah. and this, this whole house is basically... 
you know, completely kitted out with his gang of gangsters all tooled up, and he just walks in and just takes them all out, this single yeah. guy. And we actually went through step by step of how you would use the rules. <laughs> could could we create that with the rules? And we just went through each step. And that was, you know, it was just a real interesting experience to do that and to work out how we would do it, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of more sort of things that you can sort of test out, you know, your, your ideas against, really, like sort of uh, a springboard. Well, similarly, when we were talking about the chase rules, I remember, you know, one of the first things that came up there was, you know, could we do the classic chase scene from The Shadow of Rinsmith? Yeah, that was very much an inspiration for, I think, was that, that, that scene in Shadow of Rinsmith where... Um, Lovecraft's protagonist is, is chased through this seaside town um, by these sort of monstrous beings. And he's, a lot of it is just him running down streets and hiding in doorways and then trying to figure out how to make his way out of town across a bridge and so on. But there's a lot of very dramatic chase action in that. Uh, and role-playing games very much often just focus on, in terms of action, uh, when they do action, it tends to be combat. Um, we want it to be reflect sort of chases as well, because if it's a horror game, Often it's wiser to actually run away from something that is to try and fight it. And, you know, running away from something, we see so many chase scenes, not in fiction, but, you know, in, in, in well, not just in literature, but in, in movies as well. The chase scene is a classic. Yeah, and, and it always struck me that in Call of Cthulhu, running away from a fight should be at least as exciting as the fight itself. Mm. Uh, any more questions? Question. Uh, yeah. I've always felt Book Cthulhu very much HP Lovecraft the RPG. Are there any sort of new writers now who will influence the material that will be published down the board called Cthulhu? Oh gosh. So, um, what new writers are there out there who are uh, influencing Call of Cthulhu? I think the answer is yes, because it's a living game. You know, it's not just. Uh, you know, it, it, it pulls from a wide range of, um, of people writing for the game, you know, both internally and externally to the world of freelance uh, uh, game writers, um, who are all equally inspired by many different things, and including that will be contemporary writers like Laird Barron. Yes. Um, yeah. um, Thomas Ligotti. Uh, Thomas Ligotti, uh, William Pugmire, um, Joe Pulver. Um, Cody Goodfellow. Cody Goodfellow. The, the name, you know, yeah. Look at any any modern list of you know up and coming and, and established you know horror writers, particularly. They are equally as inspiring as going back to Clark Ashton Smith, August Leth, Lovecraft, <coughs> Robert E. Howard. Um, I mean, in fact, more so because obviously those older authors. We've seen a lot of the stuff that's inspired and that's all been great but you know we also want new stuff we want to you know go in new directions and be and look for innovation and creation and and so you know that the kind of new wave of rights if you want to put it like that you know uh, is equally valid and if not more so because you know we want to it's a living game we want to keep it breathing and, and we keep it you know relevant to you know there's no point basing it off 1930s Frankenstein films which frankly not going to be that scary to a contemporary audience or, 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 or mysterious, perhaps. So, um, yeah, drawing on new new stuff is is, is very much important. Yeah, yeah and I, I think also that something has changed very much in the way that mythos fiction is being written over the years, which I think is beginning to seep into uh, RPG writing, which is, I mean, for, for a long time, the, the writers who followed in Lovecraft's wake 
were to some extent trying to be Lovecraft. They were aping his style, they were coming up with the same kind of lists of names of books they were using, sometimes the same gods and creatures and monsters or adding their own you know, bits, but they were bolting things on very much to what was there and, and uh, expanding it. What I think is happening more and more with the new generation of Lovecraftian writers is that you're, you're seeing wholesale reinventions of the mythos and of, of Lovecraftian fiction. You're seeing, you know, I mean, uh, Mike mentioned writers like uh, Matt Ruff and, and uh, Victor Lavelle um, using you know, Lovecraft as a way of talking about social issues. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's more than just that. I mean, you know, Thomas Lagotti, who we mentioned, I, I, I was trying to describe him recently to, to someone, and it's sort of, you know, it, it's what you'd get if you took all the monsters out of Lovecraft and just left the atmosphere and that sense of nihilism and dread. Um, yeah, with with Laird Barron, you know, who, who Mike mentioned, there you won't find a single Lovecraftian name or entity in any of his books. But on the other hand, again, the atmosphere and that that underlying sense of dread is there. Um, but there are monsters as well, and and these people are, are taking Lovecraft and and making something new uh, rather than just echoing what has gone which, before. Which you know goes back to what. I think he was trying to do with the, with the right, yeah. his contemporary writers in that kind of Lovecraft circle. They were they were pushing each other to go and you know, you know go and take this and do something with it, and then throw back and that inspires them to do something else. So I think it's just a continuation of it, but but it, but in a you know some really interesting, creative, and productive ways that we're now seeing, really, as you say, rather than just emulation. Yeah, and especially something I really want to see a lot more in Call of Cthulhu. I I, I want to see people, you know, just doing really kind of weird, innovative stuff that just turns everything on its head. Yeah, because, I mean, the one thing with Call of Cthulhu, and, and, you know, is whilst it has, you know, some distinct kind of settings in terms of historical periods where the game may be set, um, it, it isn't, a, it, it, a, like, like Lovecraft's own fiction, it isn't a canon. Uh, while, you know, the, 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 you know, for those in the know, you know, if you played the Masks of Neil Athotep campaign, it doesn't have to have to sit in the same universe as the Horror in the Orient Express campaign. They can if you wish in your your game, but there's no reason why they can't be completely separate worlds or universes. And so you can treat in the beauty of Call of Cthulhu is you can treat every game as its own game and, and not worry about anything else. So if you want to take the mythos in a certain direction or, or be inspired by a particular different writer and, and have a, a Legotti-inspired game or, or whatever it may be. Um, it, it fits very well to do that, and that's you know one of the one of the intrinsic sort of attractions to the game for me is that, that it that it isn't um, it isn't one thing. It can be it can be many different things depending on what you're looking for from it. And Lovecraft very much reinvented his own stuff, and you mm. know, sadly died at the age of forty six. I mean, if he'd have lived into his eighties, he'd have been alive in the nineteen seventies. So we wouldn't have been perhaps trying to emulate the 1920s and 1930s and thinking of that as Lovecraftian. We might have been thinking of the 60s as Lovecraftian or whatever. So I think take your inspiration wherever you can get it, really. And just by the time you've filtered it, even if it's something well-known, um, by the time it's gone through the, the filter of, of yourself as, as the person writing it and running it a different version... Again, you, you're writing for a, an audience of five or six people. Your players at the table... I think, you know, they're not really going to spot necessarily the way you get your inspiration by the time you've mashed a few things together. 
And also, I mean, going back to something Mike said earlier about, you know, you know don't just read horror, I mean, that applies just as much to getting inspiration for Call mm. of Cthulhu, that, you know, you shouldn't just be getting it from Lovecraftian fiction, I mean, you should be getting it from, you know, mysteries or mainstream fiction, literary fiction, you should be getting it from the news, you should be getting it from history books. Because um, there's all those elements, it's not yeah. just the horror, it's the... The setting, there's characters, and they could come from any fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reading crime fiction is equally valid as reading, you know, The Shadow Out of Intimate. You know. yeah. Well, for, for one of your scenarios, you were influenced by The Great Gatsby. Yeah. So it, it can come from anywhere. Uh, any more questions? <laughs> Thanks. Um, as um, if you, I don't know how many of you have been dungeon masters, but. How would you, what tips would you have for someone doing Call of Cthulhu to get that feeling of dread and nihilism and you know, you know, kind of because it's a very you know RPGs can be very kind of slow paced. Reading out the instructions, how do you keep that sense of foreboding and dread going throughout a campaign? Oh, that is a big, big topic. Um, actually, this is a good chance to plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. Um, uh, Paul and I, along with Matt, who, as we mentioned, couldn't be here, uh, do a regular podcast called The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, and that is actually one of the things we've talked about at length on the on, on the podcast. So um, if you go to blasphemoustomes.com, you can find hours of us talking about this kind of stuff. <laughs> I like literally hours. It's worth listening to that one, but there's a quick answer to it. You can't keep dread and tension continual through the game because it will become it will become ineffective in itself yeah. you become it is, inured to it yeah, yeah. so, so it, the, the trick is finding the right moments and nurturing them but these guys will talk for at least three hours on the topic and tell you a <laughs> mo- lot more than that so worth <laughs> but, listening to but yeah I mean yeah, as, as Mike mentioned it's ebbs and flows but it's also I mean, it's little things like you know the, the, the right description I mean it's um, not being over descriptive but at the same time just you know using careful word choices to paint a picture, to you know, be as viscerally nasty as, as you need to be uh, on certain occasions. Sometimes just hinted things. Uh, use all sorts of sense impressions. I mean, don't just describe what people see. Describe um, you know what they feel in the air around them, what they smell, um, you know what, what, what uh, they can hear. It's it's um, you know a little thing, but you, you never never give too clear a description of monsters or mention their names or anything like that because that immediately neuters them that as long as you can keep a sense of mystery about what's going on then that inspires dread as soon as people feel a sense of surety about what's going on then that that immediately punctures that balloon I mean, things like uh, isolation. Isolation helps an awful lot. If if you know, the the player characters don't feel that they have a lifeline they can call on, um, or an easy way out of the situation, then you do get that escalating sense of dread. But I mean, you know, the the, the surest answer tends to be: ask yourself what scares you, because ninety nine percent of the time, if it scares you, it's probably going to scare your players. And the other answer is watch your subtly watch your players like a hawk, and pick up when when it starts to work, and then drive it home with a big hammer and a nail. That you know that's that's you know watch your players see see how they react to things because they're you know people are pretty good about giving clues about how they're feeling you know body language what they're saying nervous laughter whatever it may be, and uh, you know work with them to build the story in that way. Too much mention Kiri's book. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of ours, Kerry, would ask people what frightened them when when he met them. 
Yeah. Not um, random strangers, but like people. Well, it, it was. Well, it was sometimes. 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 Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, go around gaming convention and ask. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah, I'm yeah. advocating that. Yeah, going up to the bar staff, what scares you? Okay, writing his book. But, I mean, you were talking about being a, a DM, a dungeon master for Dungeons and Dragons. You've done that, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I can remember the first time playing D&D and an orc jumping out, and I was, like, terrified, you know. So I think... Like Mike said, it's, it's that familiarity, or Scott said, it's that familiarity yeah. with the thing that kind of takes that away over time. But you know, your first experience of it, it's like, well, I don't know what this is. And it's that, I don't know what this is that I think instills the the nervousness, fear of the unknown. Yeah, can't go wrong. Any more questions? You um, discussed writing fiction and. For some more technical writing for writing broadly rules. Yeah. Where within that would writing something like a game book for the old fighting fantasy books? Oh yeah, I mean that's that's interesting. We we yeah we sort of glossed over other different types of role playing, um, but yeah, fighting fantasy is a really good example. I I mean personally, I say that's a sliding scale. I mean you, you you've published a few solo adventures. I mean. It obviously falls into role playing in the fact that you know you are following a thematically very similar format of game, and you know we you know, call it can play download a free solo play call it from Kazan website if you like. Um, but ultimately, they are fixed. You know, they, they, all outcomes are known because yeah. that's the nature of what you're playing. You can't with that kind of book. You don't want to turn to a page that says, you know, do you go left or right? I go left, and then it just says. Nothing. <laughs> it's like you, know, you need to know what happens. So it, it's fixed. So, it, so they are very much, you know, they are akin to a computer game in the fact that it's a logic tree that you're following. And the difference, obviously, between that and a, and a full role-playing game is that there isn't a logic tree. It is completely open, and the page can be blank because you and the and the keeper, the GM, are filling that blank space. Uh, but, it, but in terms of writing it, you know, it, I mean, again and again, it's a particularly technical skill. You know, I've. I've I've not written one from scratch, but I have edited one from scratch that was written 30 years ago and written it and rewritten it for a modern audience. And it was a hell of a lot of work because um, you have to make sure that every path on that logic tree goes somewhere and doesn't, you know, confuse matters. Um, and it's, in, you know, it's incredibly a technical kind of style of writing. Do, do you think the technical side of, of developing something like that now is, is made easier by, you know, say, tools like wikis? I'm sure, I'm sure it is, if you're technically minded to <laughs> use that sort of thing. I was, I was using a pen and paper, right? Because <laughs> that was quickest for me. Rather than getting into all that, it was quicker for me to use a pen and a bit of paper to go and write... Number one goes to 50, 60, 22, and then just following it down, actually remapping the clue tray. Because, um, but that worked for me. But equally, you know, if I'd have set up a wiki or some sort of, you know, Excel sheet, I'm sure it would have been just as easy. But it just use what works for you, isn't it? There was, there was, a, recent, there was a recent board game which was based on like, they used spreadsheets, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, interestingly enough, I. They, we, you know, having talked about the the bleed through between fiction and uh, well literature and 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 games like this, there's a really good example along those lines. Um, have you encountered a book called Life's Lottery by Kim Newman? Uh, I mean, Kim Newman is quite a popular horror yeah. writer. Yeah, wrote um, you know things exactly. like yeah, yeah. He wrote this book about ten years ago called Life's Lottery, which is actually presented as a choose-your-own-adventure book, uh, where you're you're walking the protagonist through his life. It's really quite wickedly clever. I, I do recommend it. Okay, uh, time for one last question, I think. Or if we 
bored you <laughs> enough, then that's absolutely fine too. So, uh, can I ask just one thing? Oh, sure. Yes. So, the difference between playing the game versus kind of taking part in the story. So, well, do you not find there are kind of sometimes when basically the players of the game are sort of, you know, they've had a hard day where they're too tired and they can't face having to contribute to someone's story, what they rather like to do is just play a game and say, well, I'm going to go left here. You know, can I shoot the monster, please? Yeah. Um, how, how would you deal with something like that? I think you have to go with it. Because, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not your evening of entertainment solely. It's, it's a shared evening of entertainment. So if the majority of players kind of get in and they're far too tired... I mean, I have, this, I have a regular group that is often faces this problem... You know, we meet, you know, at the end of the week, you know, like a Thursday night, more or less, normally. Everyone's had these, it's Thursday of the week before, and a lot of the time, we're all just, even I, I'm just, well, I don't think too heavy tonight, you know, just, 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 just do something and we'll roll some dice. And, and, and I think you just have to accept that, and sometimes you just have to have a look, and sometimes you start with that in mind, but the story kind of just gets into you, and suddenly you find by the end of the session, actually, you're having a very great <laughs> session. Uh, other times you just get to the point where, well, we just, you know, we'll just, let's finish it here while we're still awake and we'll just have a little chat. And we have, maybe have a chat about how the game's going or what we're going to, you know, as a GM, I'll, what I'll do is go, well, what are you thinking of doing next week then? What, and that, and to get them focused and then also to focus them for the next session. So they spend from now to next week hopefully thinking about what they're going to do and throw a few little curve, you know, say, well, what do you think such and such is trying to get out of you or, you know, what, what are you going to do about that dragon upstairs or what, you know, whatever it may be. And sometimes you just have to face facts that people are tired and that's, yeah. that's fine. Well, just not everybody's going to be overly creative um, and they just do want to sort of follow through a story. You know, there's a, there's a wide variety of players out there um, and if your players just kind of want to go through a story and just kind of experience the story that you've got, that's fine. You know, you, you turn up the, as, as the GM, you just kind of turn up at the table with, you know, stuff prepared um, or to be good at winging it. And it doesn't necessarily rely on the, the creativity of the players, but it can be. It also depends an awful lot on the type of, type of game you're all playing. Yeah, if you're playing a very kind of old school dungeon bash, then it's very, very easy to play it in a passive mode and sort of, yeah, all right, check for traps, kick the door down, beat up the orc. If you're playing something that is, you know, say all about courtly intrigue and backstabbing and you're, you're plotting and scheming and everyone turns up one week and, and they're knackered, that's probably going to be a pretty flat session. Right. Well... So if you are interested in role-playing games and you are reasonably local, there's the Milton Keynes Role-Playing Games Club. Uh, if you want more information on that, come and see us or just Google um, Milton Keynes Role-Playing Games Club. But, but the basic version is we meet Tuesday evenings uh, between 8 to 11pm in Stony Stratford at York House. Um, it costs £8 a month um, and uh, there are short campaigns available uh, and, and lots of one-shot games um, and yeah, it'd be delightful to see some of you there. No, I was just going to say, if anybody does want any more information about anything we've talked about tonight, then just pop over and see us at the end. Yeah, and if you you know if you are interested in Call of Cthulhu, please just you know put www.chaosium chaos c h a o s i u m dot com. But if you just put Call of Cthulhu, and you find it. But yeah. but if you come to the Chaosium website, there are free. You know, you can get a quick start rule set for free. Download. You can also get the solo play game I mentioned, uh, Alone Against the Frames, as a free download. And there is actually, if you go to the Call of Cthulhu page, a whole kind of button you press if like, 
I don't know anything. Please just tell me stuff. <laughs> you can press that, and there's a whole kind of like little series of you know, info bites to just kind of bring you up to speed if you want to know a little bit more. But uh, and 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 also if you want to learn a bit more, Paul did a series of videos which are up on YouTube, which again you can find off off our website blasphemoustomes.com. There are plenty of good resources out there on the internet. Uh, um, plenty of uh, welcoming forums and uh, communities on on Facebook and Google Plus. So, um, yeah, uh, if, if yeah. But in the meantime, if you have any questions, then yeah, come and see us afterwards. Yeah. Thanks very much for. Well, th- thank you all for coming out. It's yeah. Hope hope it's been interesting. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed that, and we have news that there'll be another Milton Keynes Literary Festival. September 2018, and who knows, you may well see us there again. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com